The Gospel, a basic truth, is sponsored by One Jump Ahead, a nonprofit sport ministry with a focus on strengthening families on our journey together. They provide a family oriented sport with Christ centered values and a unique look into how jump rope goes hand in hand with the gospel and our daily walk with Christ. Check them out. Go to onejumpahead.org. That's onejumpahead.org. Greetings. If someone were to ask you, where can I find the gospel in the Bible? I think most of us would say, oh, that's easy, John 3.16. And of course, that's true. But did you know there are many other places in the Bible where we can find the gospel? One of my favorite places is 1 John 5.11-13. The Apostle John wrote many things. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three letters. We call them epistles. And he wrote the book of Revelation about end times. If we were to turn to 1 John, we'll start in verse 11. And this is the testimony. Now, I'm going to stop there. We're going to get into some detail, and I will come back and look at all three verses with you. We are doing this today to help you understand and realize there are other gospel verses in the Bible. We do this to encourage you and to give you some tools that will help you as you talk to your family and friends about the gospel. John is ending this letter, 1 John, and he's got some important points. And one of those important points he wants to emphasize at the end of the letter is, what is his testimony about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's now look at why he wrote that letter. So we're going to go to what we call the prologue. So this would be the beginning of the letter. 1 John 1, this is verses 1 through 4, and I'll read them. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now let me point out a few things for you. John starts out by saying that which was from the beginning, and and then he he gives a name to it, the word of life. John does that similarly in the Gospel of John. He refers to Jesus Christ as, in the beginning was the word, and the word was life. So he starts that same way in his first letter. Only this time he says, we were witnesses, we heard Jesus, we saw Jesus with our own eyes, we looked at what he did, and we touched him with our hands. Now, this life was made manifest to us, and he refers to this life of Jesus as the eternal life that was, came from the beginning. And he further says it was God the Father who made manifest, in other words, who gave them Jesus Christ. So the gospel that John has is not some mission statement that everybody sat around the table and hammered out. This gospel message that he is testifying to came from God the Father. Then notice that John says, we proclaim this message, this this testimony about Jesus to you, so that you will have fellowship with us, because we have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. We want you to have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son, but the only way you can do that is through our testimony of the gospel. And that's why we write, so that our joy will be complete and that you will have fellowship with us and with God. Let me point out, John is a witness. What's an important thing 
for a witness. A witness has to have credibility. If you think of a court of law, it could be civil or criminal, evidence is presented to the fact finder, and it's either done through a personal eyewitness or an expert witness who has some expertise and tells you what their opinion is on some forensic matter. So before we look at John's testimony, is he a credible witness? And for that, we now go back to the Gospel of John. Now, when I say the Gospel of John, I smile because there's a very odd thing about the Gospel of John. John's name is not mentioned anywhere in the Gospel of John. Now, he's there. He's all over the the story. But he's always referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, we know from the other Gospels, written by others, that (laughs) disciple whom Jesus loved is John. John lived to be well into his 90s, and two of his famous pupils went on to be early church fathers who wrote a great deal of what, what we know of the early church, and they go, oh yeah, that was John. John just didn't want to put his name in there. So we first meet John in the Gospel of John in chapter 1. John is 19, 20 years old, max. We know from his disciples that John was the youngest of Jesus' disciples, no more than 20. John, by day, was a fisherman, as was his brother James and their father Zebedee. But she didn't fish every day. He had a lot of time on his hands. And he was too young to get married. Jewish men didn't get married till they were about 25. Anything younger than that, no. So what was John interested in? He was interested in spiritual things. We see right there in chapter 1 that John the Apostle, and there's a lot of Johns here, so work with me. John the Apostle is actually a disciple of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is uh, important. We often say he's the last Old Testament prophet, but he's important to the narrative of the gospel because it was John the Baptist who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And when Jesus came out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove and landed upon Jesus. John the Baptist is talking to two of his young disciples, John the Apostle, and we know the other one was Andrew. Jesus walks by, and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, that was an incredible statement. And then John goes on to say, The only reason that I know this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world is because God the Father told me that when I was baptizing When I saw the Holy Spirit descend upon someone, that was the Messiah. Lamb of God is a term we don't use too often, but certainly back then, people understood that a lamb was a sacrifice to cover sin. So people would bring a lamb without blemish, the lamb would be sacrificed, the blood put on the altar, and that covered sin temporarily for a season. But the prophets, and in particular the prophet Isaiah, and we can read about that in chapter 53 of Isaiah, he refers to the Messiah as the suffering servant. And he said, this suffering servant who who would do no sin would die for the sin of the world, a permanent sacrifice for sin, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. So these two young men, as soon as they hear this, they immediately follow after Jesus. So John, the apostle, was one of the first two disciples that Jesus had. We know that uh, John brought his older brother James, and Andrew brought his older brother Andrew to Jesus. 
And, uh, excuse me, Andrew brought his older brother, uh, Peter, Simon Peter, to Jesus. John was now with Jesus for three years during his earthly ministry. John can testify to two things. The first that he can testify to is Jesus was a person, a real live human being, flesh and blood. You can talk to him. We ate with him. We know. The second thing that John is going to be able to testify, and this takes a little longer, is that Jesus is God. God come in the flesh. John, from the very beginning, witnessed that Jesus had power over nature and the elements. The the first miracle that we see in Scripture that Jesus does, he turns water into wine. Jesus can defy gravity. He can walk on the Lake of Galilee without getting his knees wet. He has power over nature. He can stop a furious storm with just a word. And John saw how Jesus could create matter. Jesus took a, a little boy's meal, about the size of a happy meal, and he reproduced it and made food for thousands of people. The first time he did it was said it was 5,000. Second time he did it, he made meals for 4,000 out of just a little bit. John also saw that Jesus had power over disease and sickness. Jesus healed whoever came to him. John saw how Jesus healed people born blind, people with congenital defects, people with terrible injuries. Jesus even healed the most deadly disease of that time, which was leprosy. It was a fatal disease. Essentially, the flesh rotted off. It was a terrible thing. It was never cured. But Jesus cured people that had leprosy and restored their flesh. John saw how Jesus had power over demons. Jesus could cast out demons. In fact, two notable cases. Jesus cast seven demons out of this woman named Mary, who came from a little fishing village called Magdala on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus even cast demons out of Gentiles. Jesus cast over a thousand demons out of this Gentile man who was living in the area of the Gerasenes, a Gentile area on the east side of the Lake of Galilee. This man was out of his mind. He was living in a cemetery, and he was naked, and he had superhuman strength. Think about the Hulk, okay? Jesus was able to cast all those demons out and restore the man to his normal thinking mind. Jesus had power over death. Can you imagine? Jesus, at least three instances where Jesus raised people from the dead— But the last one is so noteworthy. Jesus raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, along with his sisters Mary and Martha, ran a bed and breakfast in a little village called Bethany, about three, four miles walk out of Jerusalem. Now, I'm using this term, bed and breakfast, because the two sisters and Lazarus were in the hospitality industry, and they catered to the pilgrims. Now, the law of Moses required that Jewish men attend these three annual festivals at the temple, tabernacle first, then the temple. And it didn't matter where you lived in Israel or if you lived in another country, you were expected, that was part of the religion, to go to the festival at the temple. People often brought their families. Historians tell us that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people would come, and perhaps even close to a million. 
Well, Jerusalem was the capital city, but it was tiny, and they didn't have any hotels. So the villages and towns within walking distance of Jerusalem realized they could cater to the pilgrims. So pilgrims would come, they could sleep. In the morning, the host would feed them, give them a little snack to cake with them for the day. They would go to the activities at the temple, and then in late afternoon, they would walk back before sunset, and the host would feed them dinner, and of course, they'd stay the night. Jesus and his disciples were from the northern part of Israel, near Galilee. Jerusalem is in the south. And so the bed and breakfast of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha is where Jesus and his disciples stayed. And they became very good friends. And we know as we read through the Gospels that Lazarus and Mary and Martha were all believers. They were close. Lazarus gets sick, and Jesus knows it. And at some point, Lazarus dies, but Jesus waits. A few days later, he says, okay, we're now going to go to Mary and Martha. And um, so as they're going and the disciples are following, I have to say that this bed and breakfast was a very lucrative business. They, they made a lot of money. Lazarus was a well-known man. And um, there were many, many people that came out to mourn Lazarus. And we know not just from the surrounding villages and towns, but people, prominent people from Jerusalem itself, the capital city, came out to pay their respects to the sisters. So there's all these people there, and that's important. Jesus uh, arrives, and he talks to the older sister, Martha, and she's like, if only you were here, you could have healed him. And Jesus says, take me to him. So Martha and Mary take Jesus to the, the grave the crypt. Disciples and John follow, and of course, then all the mourners. They're there in front of the crypt, and Jesus says to Martha, order that the stone be removed. And she's like, I can't do that. I mean, it'd be a terrible smell. He's been dead for four days. His, his body is d- decaying. Jesus said, have faith. So the stone is removed. And I can imagine that John the Apostle can testify that Yep, there was a terrible smell that came out of the tomb. That I can remember. Jesus stood in front of the tomb and he said in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And I think John can say, yeah, the smell stopped. There was a rustling. And then here comes Lazarus, bunny hopping out of the tomb because he's still tied in his grave clothes. Not only was that an incredible, never been done. I mean, raising somebody who was not dead. Lazarus was dead dead. I mean, he was lying, moldering in the grave, as they say. And it was witnessed by so many people, it could not be denied. Now, some of the people from Jerusalem who were mourners were not friends of Jesus, and they went back and told the high priest. And that was the incident that broke the camel's back, if you will, because the leaders could not allow Jesus to live. Clearly, only God could do that, and the people would think Jesus was the Messiah, and the leaders couldn't have that. They would lose their position. And so that was the point where they decided that Jesus must die. There's one more incident. It is not recorded in the, uh, the Gospel of John, but uh, Matthew and Luke record it. Jesus takes John and James and Peter to the top of a mountain. We call this the Mount of Transfiguration. Night comes, and the disciples are allowed to see 
some of the glory of God, the glory that Jesus had before the incarnation. And so, you know, it's like, flame on. I mean, he is you know, brilliant and, and just all of this glory and brilliance and light up the sky. And while they're watching this, there appear two people. There appear, and they understand one is Moses, the lawgiver, and the other is the prophet Elijah, representing the prophets. And they're talking to Jesus. They are giving witness that the law and the prophets are testifying that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who was promised. And then the story goes out of control now because this cloud comes over the mountain and they can't see anything. But they hear a voice from above. It is a voice of God the Father who says to the disciples, this is my beloved son, listen to him. John doesn't say it in his gospel, but he tells us in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, I was there on the mountain, I saw the glory of God, Jesus, during the transfiguration. John can testify that Jesus is God come in the flesh. You know, at the uh, Last Supper, after the Last Supper, they go to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Jesus knows the terrible things that are going to happen to him the next day, and so they're praying. At some point, Judas the betrayer comes, and Jesus is arrested. All the disciples scatter except for Peter and John. Peter and John follow the soldiers as they take Jesus to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where Jesus will have his first interrogation. Peter is not allowed into the uh, court of the high priest, but John apparently knows somebody, and he gets a pass for Peter, so Peter is allowed to go in. And that was probably one of Peter's worst days, because as we know, Peter denies Jesus three times that night in, in the courtyard. And when the rooster crows, Peter flees. Now there's only John. The next day, the only disciple who is at the cross who sees the actual crucifixion is John, who is all of 22 or 23, max. Now there are other disciples there. They're all the women, including Mary, Jesus' mother. I, I, I cannot imagine watching somebody being killed and tortured, I mean, without going through all that Jesus went through. I mean, it was just horrible, horrible, horrible death. And then to watch him asphyxiate on the cross. Um, and even afterwards, when his body is desecrated, when the Roman soldier puts the spear through Jesus' stomach and heart, I mean, if anybody would going to have post-traumatic stress, I think we'd have it after watching that. We know that Jesus said seven things while he was dying on the cross. And incredibly, one of those things he said to John. Can you imagine if you were at the cross, you or I, and Jesus is dying, and I can't imagine, but if you could, and Jesus calls out your name and says, I have a job for you. What would go through your mind? Oh my gosh, are you going to send me to China? Are you going to send me to Africa? What, what are you going to ask me to do, Lord? And Jesus said, I want you to take care of my mother. I want that to sink in for a second. Would any of us want the job of taking care of Mary, the mother of Jesus? I mean, that is a job that you cannot mess up. 
okay? You can mess up a lot of jobs, but you can't mess up that one. Actually, how it went down was Jesus said, looked at his mother and said, woman, this is your son. And then he looks at John and said, this is your mother. Obviously, Jesus wanted to take care of his mother. It is interesting that he did not choose one of his half-brothers. We know Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. We know of at least two of them, James and Jude, who became saved after the resurrection. And, and they wrote their testimonies, and they're available to us in the, in the Bible. But he chose John. I want to say, I think Jesus also had another agenda, not just taking care of Mary. I think Jesus wanted Mary to take care of John. John was very young, and suddenly he was going to become one of the leaders of the church. John would never get married. He would never know a wife. He would never have children. He would live for another 70 years. Within a short time, his mother Salome and his father Zebedee would die. His older brother James was martyred within a couple of years after the resurrection. John was going to be all alone. We know that the other disciples, we know that Peter was married, had a mother-in-law, Jesus healed her of a fever. And the Apostle Paul tells us in the Corinthians that the other apostles had wives and even took them on their mission trips, but not John. Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, all the disciples are back together. They're hiding out in a locked room somewhere. Jesus said he was going to rise from the, the dead, but they didn't go to the tomb. The women did. And then suddenly they come running back and they're knocking on the door. We went to the tomb. He's not there. Jesus is not there. Oh, and we talked to a couple of angels while we were there. Who runs to the empty tomb? It's Peter and John. A few days later, the disciples, they're still quite afraid. They are again in a locked room and they're having a meal. The resurrected Lord appears to them. And he's full full body, physical. He says, look, I'm real. Don't be afraid. I'm not a ghost. Touch me. Put your hands here in the holes. Let me eat something. I'm a real person. Can you imagine what John must have been going through? The day or so, a couple of days before, he saw the most gruesome, horrific thing he'd ever seen in his life. One of his best friends, maybe his best friend ever, dying, horrible death. And now this guy is alive. Absolute emotion. But John can testify to all that. In fact, John saw the resurrected Jesus several times in the 40-day window after the resurrection, before Jesus ascended into heaven for the last time. John was there when Jesus ascended for the last time, and Jesus gave the, the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, therefore go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you to the end of the age. And then he was taken up into heaven. And as the disciples are looking up into heaven, a couple of angels appear and say, boys, what are you doing? What are you looking up in the sky for? You have a job to do. Okay, you're on the clock. The Great Commission. You got a lot of work to do. I mean, a little facetious, but I'm making a point here. John was there for all of this. And you know, 10 days later, he was there at the day of Pentecost when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and all of these witnesses were able 
to witness in a language not their own to some of the pilgrims that had come to one of those three feasts, in this case, the Feast of Pentecost. So now I go back and I say, what kind of witness is John? John is an impeccable witness. John is the best witness for the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ of any human being, perhaps with the exception of Jesus' mother Mary. So let us now go back to his testimony. 1 John 5, 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Let me say this in my own words. John is telling us, look, my testimony as to the gospel is that God the Father gave us eternal life. What does he mean by eternal life? Forgiveness of sins, fellowship with God, life everlasting. God gave that to us in the life of Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus, you can have this. I kind of call it the benefit package the best benefit package anybody could ever get. Forgiveness of sins, fellowship with God, and life everlasting. And if you don't have Jesus, you don't get the package. If you're new to this, you may say, okay, how do I get Jesus? John anticipates that question, and he answers it in the very next sentence. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, when he says believe, I I, want to go back to when Jesus appeared to the disciples the first time after the resurrection. One of his disciples wasn't there, a man named Thomas. When he was told about it afterwards by the other disciples, Thomas doubted. He goes, "Ah, I I don't know if I can believe you. I think I have to see it for myself. So the next time Jesus came, Thomas was there. Jesus said, Thomas, come, touch me. Put your hands in the holes, in my hands and my feet. And of course, at this time, Thomas immediately, to his credit, falls to his knees, worships Jesus and said, you are my Lord and my God. Curious what Jesus says to Thomas. He doesn't say, well, thank you. That was a good thing. What he says is, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who do not see, but who believe. And that is what John is calling us to. You are called to believe things you did not see. John saw them, and he is the eyewitness. And he is saying, believe in this eyewitness testimony. That is what you must believe, this testimony that I'm giving you, even though you can't see it. And when it says to believe in the name of somebody, it just simply means to believe in everything there is to know about the person. Now, this last part of the verse I add a word. I don't do any violence, but I do it for me. And so here's the word I add. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know with certainty that you have eternal life. The Bible was not written in English. It was not written in Latin. It was written in the common Greek. We call it Koine Greek. And the underlying Greek word here for know is a strong word. It's not a I think so. I know, or I hope so. 
This underlying Greek word for know is, I know so. Just like I know two and two is four, I know with certainty. Dear friends, I hope that you will know with certainty that you have eternal life and that you will believe, even though you didn't see it, that you will believe on this incredible eyewitness testimony, which is written down as you can read yourself. So with that, let me pray over us as we end. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the eternal life that you have given us through Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, fellowship with God, and life everlasting. Father, help us to believe in things not seen, and help us to know with certainty that we have eternal life in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.